The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let us now turn to God's Word, Jonah chapter 3, as we continue our series in this book. Two weeks ago, we saw Jonah, a prophet, running from the Lord. And then last week, we saw Jonah, a repentant prophet, and his prayer that's recorded in Jonah 2 from the belly of the fish, recorded certainly afterwards, but... Jonah repenting of his running. And now we turn to Jonah 3 where we see a great revival. So Jonah, a revival prophet. Let us hear God's word, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city, a visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, And sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The word revival has various meanings. When you hear the word, depending on your background, you might think of revival as a series of special meetings, like a Billy Graham crusade. I'm using the word in a different sense, revival as a sovereign and gracious work of God in pouring out His Spirit with power on His church so that the word of God runs with amazing results, with deep results in lives changed by the gospel. That's the true sense of revival from a biblical sense. In this sense of the term, the Reformation in Europe was one of the greatest revivals of all time. And in this sense, the Great Awakening in Britain and the United States in in the 18th century was a great revival. And so was the second Great Awakening in the 19th century. I want to read to you an account 
from the first Great Awakening when George Whitfield came to preach in the United States in the fledgling colonies at that time. This is an account from 1740, the, the fall of 1740. Of course, America, the United States, uh, is uh, scattered about with a not large population at the time. And Whitfield preaches in different parts of the colonies, and he comes to New England, and he spends some time with Jonathan Edwards and his family and his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, and then Jonathan Edwards takes him part of the way to where he's going. He actually stays with Jonathan Edwards' parents at another church, and then finally, he comes to Middletown, Massachusetts. Now, that's not a big community, and in fact, in Whitfield's journals, all he notes is this brief line, preached to about 4,000 people at 11 o'clock. So for Whitfield, this was nothing extraordinary by any means. But there's a famous description that's come down from that of one of the hearers, a normal farmer at that time living near Middletown. And I want to read it to you just to give you a sense of what was happening in the Great Awakening. You could use many other accounts to see this as well. And I'm going to change some of his ye's. He uses ye instead of the. So I'm changing the text as I go. Let me, let me just read to you. This is the account written by a man by the name of Nathan Cole, an unlettered farmer. But he could write, and he wrote this account. Now, it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land, and I long to see and hear him. And then one morning, all on a sudden, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield is to preach at Middletown this morning at 10 o'clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and run home and through my house and bade my wife to get ready to go to hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown and run to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I should be too late to hear him and took up my wife and went forward as fast as I thought ye horse could bear. And when my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down and put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me except I bade her. And so I would run until I was almost out of breath and then mount my horse again, fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon, for we had 12 miles to ride double in little more than an hour. I saw before me a cloud or fog. I first thought of from the great river. But as I came near the road, I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder. And I presently found out it was the rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the running of horses' feet. It arose some rods into the air over the tops of the hills and trees. And when I came within about 20 rods of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along. It was like a steady stream of horses and their riders, scarcely a horse more than his length behind another. I found a vacance between two horses to slip in my horse and my wife and said, Law, our clothes will be all spoiled. See how they look. And when we got down to ye old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or four thousand. And when I looked towards the great river, I see the ferry boats running swift forward and backward. And when I see Mr. Whitfield come up upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelical, a young, slim, slender youth before thousands of people and with a bold, undainted countenance. And my hearing was God was with him everywhere as he came along, and it solemnized my mind and put me in a trembling fear before he began to preach, for he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God. 
and the sweet solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up. And I see my righteousness would not save me. What an account, isn't it? A revival is not different from God's ordinary and normal work by his spirit in people's lives. It's not different in terms of what's happening when the spirit of God works through the word of God to bring people to faith in Christ. A revival is simply different in terms of its magnitude, its scope. God's spirit working in many lives at the same time. And so there's a more sudden and dramatic nature to it. And we certainly hear it in that account of Nathan Cole and how he came to know Christ. Jonah 3 is an account of what might be called the greatest revival, at least in such a short period of time, in history. And it's really the climax of the book of Jonah. We'll see from chapter 4 that it's not the end of the story. And Jonah finally goes to Nineveh and preaches, and essentially what we're told here is that the whole city believes and repents. Now, we're not told that every last single individual truly was converted at this time, but certainly a great change takes place. And this is no small city. We notice that it takes three days, apparently, to go through it. That's not simply the walled part. There would have been a walled part of the city, which was about seven or eight miles around. This would have been the whole, what we would call, metropolitan area of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And apparently, a great revival takes place. We see the king issued this decree of calling the people to repent and turn. We want to think in the time we have, what can we learn from Jonah and this amazing revival? The first point I'd like us to see is this. God uses broken and weak vessels in accomplishing his purposes. God uses broken and weak vessels in accomplishing his purposes. We see in chapter 3, verse 1, and you might have just almost skipped over the first verse, stopping to think about this, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go and preach. If you think about what we've seen so far in this book, isn't that an indication of God's persistent grace? The call of God came to Jonah a second time. Here's Jonah. The first time the call came in chapter 1, we saw that instead of going the direction he should have gone, north or northeast, he goes west, and he heads for the farthest corner of the empire or of the known world at that time. And so the call of God comes to Jonah again. Go to proclaim to the great city of Nineveh, and proclaim to it the message I give you. A slightly different language of the call. Some have said that this seems to be a more absolute call. He doesn't even tell Jonah what he's going to tell him to preach. He just says, go, and I will tell you what to preach. Jonah had a pretty good idea from the first call what that was going to be. And he goes, and he does that. He fulfills. He obeys this time. God does not give up on his designs for our lives. Even in the face of our waywardness, our sinfulness, our dullness of heart, God uses weak vessels to fulfill his 
purposes and goals. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul's talking about the wisdom of God displayed in the preaching of Jesus Christ and the cross. And he's talking about preaching Christ crucified, foolishness to the Gentiles, a stumbling block to Jews. And then in verse 26, he says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Isn't that God's typical way that he uses the weak, in a sense, Paul's saying, the nothings of this world to bring to naught the things that are? God's purpose was to use Jonah. We might even say that it is amazing how God here used even the result of Jonah's disobedience to equip Jonah for this task. Our minds somewhat do flip-flops when we think about that. We knew that Jonah was disobeying the will of God in Jonah chapter 1, and, and you can never use this truth as an excuse for sin, but what we're essentially saying here is that God is so great and sovereign over all things that he is able, and he promises to do that, to use all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God used even Jonah's sinful running to prepare Jonah for this task. We can say that there was a sense in which there was a greater brokenness, a greater humiliation, and a humbleness in Jonah, we might say, that Jonah first needed to be broken in this way, apparently, and more molded by God and more filled with the love of God to go to this Gentile city and preach to them. We're not told a lot about this, but it's evident from this fact that we might say where sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. So we think of Abraham. Remember when the call of God came to Abraham in Ur? And then later on, we find that he's in Haran. He's not where he's yet supposed to be, and the call of God comes again. So Abraham had a second call, we might say. Moses was certainly... Uh, called by God, but first he made that abortive attempt in Egypt when he killed that Egyptian, and then he fled, and there were those 40 years in the Midian wilderness until God called him, we might say. Moses, in a sense, is similar to that, or Peter being called as a disciple, an apostle of Christ, and we know he denied the Lord three times, and then John 21 tells us for that, about that amazing restoration Peter experienced when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus restored this man who had so denied him. There's someone in our congregation, I won't mention any names up front here, but who recently wrote a self-published book about her conversion and about her uh, early life. And I've heard, speaking to various folks in this church, that this book has been really used by God, and especially in people in the city ministry of our church, people who have experienced the kind of experience this person had in her early life. And so it's been really used by God. 
And you might say, that's the same Jonah kind of thing that we see here. God is so great and able that he's able to use us with our brokenness, our weakness, our past lives, and he weaves it all together to his appointed purpose and end. And so God uses broken and weak vessels, we find. Our second point, and it's similar to the first, you might say it's an elaboration of the first point, is that God intends to bring life out of death. God intends to bring life out of death. In a sense, this is an extension of God using us in our weakness, and it, it elaborates it in a sense. When Jesus teaches about Jonah, at a number of places in, in Matthew chapter 12 and chapter 16 and in Luke 11, we see Jesus point to the sign of Jonah. And he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man. And he talks about that. And he's obviously talking about his death and his resurrection. Jesus is teaching this important point about God bringing life out of death. And it's interesting in the Gospel of John, when near the end of his ministry, when he's anointed at Bethany and right around that time, just before his death, Gentiles or Greeks come to the disciples and want to see Christ. And we read in John twelve twenty four that Jesus replies, verse 23, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then this principle, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The principle there Jesus is speaking about, and that ultimately is fulfilled in his death for sinners, is that God purposes to bring life out of death. And in the great overarching sense, that's through Jesus Christ's death. There is an application of that to all of us as well. And that is, it's in a secondary sense that God's life and power is at work in our weakness, and we might say in our death, in our brokenness. Second Corinthians chapter 4 describes it in verse Seven, there's that familiar verse, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's what you and I are. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then down in verse 11, Paul writes, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is at work in you. Now, for Paul, he was talking about the sufferings that he experienced as an apostle, that the Gentiles might come to know Christ. In a wider sense, that applies to every believer. The principle of God's resurrection life through us as we are willing to follow the path of, in a sense, death to self through Christ. We ought to be prepared to, like our Savior, die that others might receive life. Maybe we won't be called to do that in an ultimate, radical kind of sense, but there are lots of little ways that we are called to die to sinful self, that the aroma of Jesus Christ might be seen and heard 
by those around us, as we live lives before others. And this is true for all of us as we seek to be God's instrument. Jonah was obviously an instrument of the Lord in this powerful, dramatic way. He preaches, and suddenly the whole city is in sackcloth and ashes, repenting and turning to the Lord and crying out to the Lord. Now, you know, I doubt that anyone in this room is going to have that kind of an an impact anytime soon. If it happens, let me know. I'd like to put it on the front page of the newspaper. There's this sense in which each of us, in the sphere in which God has placed you and me, There's this principle of God producing his life as we experience death, as we die to sinful self, as we trust God for the hardships in our life, as we seek Jesus Christ, and as we walk the way of the cross following Christ, that God brings forth life. Let's turn to revival itself. We've seen this principle of God's blessing in the midst of weakness, God bringing life out of death. Let's see the third, and this is the last point, and this is about revival itself. And this is the point that God used a restored Jonah to bring revival to Nineveh. God uses a restored Jonah to bring revival. Revival, we've seen, is essentially a magnifying and a multiplying of what happens whenever God works in any of our lives. And essentially, we see in Jonah 3 this great conversion of many in the city of Nineveh. Well, what can we say from looking at this about the characteristics of revival? I'd like to see under this point three characteristics and just briefly look at them. One of the characteristics of revival is that God opens blind eyes to see spiritual truth. God opens eyes to see spiritual truth. We could call this illumination. God brings sight. We know that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit, we're told. But Jonah begins to preach, and you just almost see him, you know, start through this city. And, you know, you can just see the dusty roads and peasants all around and chickens and, you know, maybe whatever animals they had, and walking down the roads, and we're told the essence of his message in verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's the message God gave him. Now, that could be a summary of what Jonah preached. In other words, he could have elaborated that sum, and the Bible often gives us summaries like that. For example, in the book of Acts, we see summaries of Paul's sermons or Peter's sermon. We're not necessarily given every word. We're given summaries. So it could have been that Jonah said more, but he might have just said essentially that. You just see him walking down those roads and saying, you know, kind of this foreigner coming among them, probably with a strange accent. I don't even know if he had to have a translator or what, but you can just see him calling out 40 days and Nineveh is no more. There wasn't a lot of gospel truth being preached. Judgment is going to come 40 days. And in verse 5, we see the response. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. They believed God. They had their eyes open to spiritual truth. These 
people who were blind before this time and just going about their business and their work, suddenly God had opened their eyes and they saw the reality of the spiritual judgment that hung over their heads and that was going to be registered in very dramatic, real, material terms in the city being destroyed. It reminds me of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches and in verse 37 of chapter 2, you find that the audience is cut to the heart. Their eyes are open. They're cut to the heart, and they say, what shall we do? Their eyes were opened. It reminds me of Paul's description of his ministry in Acts twenty-six seventeen and following when he's describing his ministry, how that Jesus Christ had sent him to open the eyes of the Gentiles. Isn't that what Jonah saw here as well? Their eyes were open to spiritual things. So first of all, the first characteristic is God opens blind eyes. Secondly, we see a characteristic of revival is true faith. True faith of some kind. A sense of conviction that God's word is true. Again, verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. But then further on, down in verse 8, This is the king's decree. He says, Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. In a sense, that's the essence of faith. Faith expressed in prayer, calling urgently on God. I think it's interesting in verse 9, the basis of what the king is asking them to do. He says, Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. You see, what is the basis of faith? It's the objective reality of the promise of God's word. Now, we don't know how much the Ninevites understood about the gospel and the God of mercy and grace. Obviously, the king knew something of that, and it's not like Nineveh existed in a vacuum. You know, they would have known something about Israel and the true God and things like that. Some of them obviously would have known more than others. Obviously, there was a a knowledge, faith, in this sense that they knew that there was a spiritual danger of judgment because of their sins, but also some kind of realization of God's grace. As dim and as shadowy and as hazy as it must have been, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger. So there was, we might say, there was the seed of faith Reminds me of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 when Jesus is there and she comes and pleads with him, pleads that her son be healed, and Jesus says, well, you know, uh, the food is not for anyone outside of Israel, um, and, you know, for, and he uses the word dogs, and she says, oh, but Lord, even the dogs get the crumbs. She's pleading for him, and it's like the Ninevites know something about the true God, And there's this obvious work of the Spirit to give faith. And then the third characteristic is repentance. In fact, that's the primary characteristic that comes across here, a repentance that's certainly linked to faith. We might say it's the spiritual mourning over sin. And we see that show up in the the physical and outward expression of their response, that they fast They put on sackcloth. The king issues this proclamation. And just look how severe it is. They have the most uh, extensive fast that you can imagine. 
don't even let your animals eat. You know, I just think, what would my dog think if, you know, we didn't give her her food? You know, would she kind of get it that we're on a spiritual fast? But this was an evidence of how serious they were about showing to the Lord their deep mourning over their sins. And let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. So there's this general turning from sin. And we notice in verse 8 that there's even a call to turn from specific sins. Notice how it says, uh, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. This was a violent place. You think of the violent places in the world. We're leaving to go to El Paso tomorrow, and we're going to be right across from Juarez, which is the murder capital now of the world. You think Nineveh was probably in that day and age the murder capital of the world, and later on, a couple generations down the road, Nahum would talk about just the exceeding wickedness of Nineveh and how cruel they were. At this point, there's a great revival, and there's this call to repent and turn from this specific area of sin, at least that one's mentioned here, opening the eyes to see true belief or faith and deep repentance over sin, and just multiply that many, many people experiencing this at once, and that's what revival is. And the result is, in verse 10, God did not bring upon them the impending judgment he'd promised to bring. He doesn't because they respond and they turn. We're not going to take time tonight to talk about this idea of God changing his mind. It's not that he changed his mind in that sense, but that he, when he sees that they repent, he doesn't judge them. Many people have questioned over the years, how could this have been a genuine revival in light of what Nineveh and what Assyria do to Israel a few generations after this? But as we just heard from the testimonies tonight, any generation is just one generation away from the people falling into idolatry and turning away from the Lord. And certainly a few generations down the road, and we don't know exactly when Jonah took place. We think we do. It's really nothing different than what you see as a result of the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening, or you think about the revival that took place in Wales in the middle of the 1800s, and you think about the fact that In a relatively short period of time, a nation can can become almost completely godless and just very dim memories of the great revivals that took place a generation or two before. It's very possible for that to occur, and so we shouldn't be surprised that that is apparently what happened in the years to come after Jonah preached there. Well, let's look at just two brief applications from our text And from what we've seen, number one, Jonah chapter 3 teaches us God's amazing sovereignty and grace. God is the God who sovereignly saves. And if this could happen, if there could be such a revival in Nineveh, could not this happen likewise in the United States with our great spiritual need at this time? Or could this not happen in Mexico with what's going on there? Aren't we of little faith to just believe that God just can't work sometimes, we think? Or look at the 1040 window that many of you pray for. A lot of nations that are in that uh, area that are under uh, Islam. And, And you think, could God do a work there? Well, certainly he could do a work there. Look what he did in Nineveh. 
Or you might think about Europe, a post-Christian Europe. I read recently that I think it's a half of 1% of people in Dublin under 30 have any knowledge of all of Christianity in the church, a half of 1% under 30-year-olds. There's just no knowledge of the Bible and of God. Or Steve Beck in Germany tells us that 2% people in Germany, I think it is, attend church of any kind there. But God is able to do great things. Or maybe we shouldn't think of it so much as places far away and in other parts of the earth as maybe we need to apply this to someone that we're praying for, a family member, a friend, someone we're concerned about. Is God able to save Jonah chapter 3 says, God is able. He is sovereign. He is full of amazing grace. Trust in the Lord and continue. Be encouraged to pray and to labor and to tell the gospel and to serve others, knowing that God is able to work in hearts and lives. But the second application I would draw is just this. Jonah 3 teaches us that God delights to use us with all our weakness and brokenness. Again, that's the first point we saw. But to come back to that, Jonah is a a dramatic story. He had a special calling from God. All Christians have a calling from God to be salt and light where he has placed us in our lives, to testify to Jesus Christ with our lives and with our lips in some way. And maybe you've heard me preach tonight and you've come to see that the characteristics of revival haven't been fulfilled in your life. In other words, that you have never truly come to have your eyes open to Jesus Christ and who he is and trust in him and what he did on the cross and that he rose from the dead and repent and turn from your sins and cast yourself upon him. Well, maybe that's what you need to hear from this message, that it doesn't matter if everybody else is doing it. You need to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Maybe you belong to God, you know Christ, and you're seeking simply to be faithful with the gifts and the opportunities God has given to you. Remember that he delights to use us with all our weakness, with all our brokenness. Let us seek his power and his strength. He is the God who works miracles. He is the God who brings revivals. George Whitfield never intended when he came to know Christ. He never had illusions that he was going to be the great evangelist of the Great Awakening. That's what he turned out to be. He he just came from humble origins. He was the son of a tavern owner. He he was not well-to-do. He was not great in the standards of the world. But God used him for his glory, and God will use you and me as well. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for Jonah and his restoration and the way you used him mightily. It's an encouragement to us as we are so easily discouraged and we take our eyes off of you and we fail to remember that you are the God that brings revival. You are the God God that brings revival and renewal in our own hearts, in our own communities, in our own church. Father, we pray that you would revive us and that you would uh, so work that we would overflow with the power of the Spirit to those around us, that we would see you do great things for the gospel and for Jesus Christ in our day. We pray in his name. Amen.